Now, though, 2 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, today we're looking at David and Absalom. Absalom is David's son, and we're going to read about his conspiracy, his son Absalom's conspiracy to overthrow David as king over Israel. 2 Samuel 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear them. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who, became, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Gersher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew stronger, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword." And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord my king decides. Then verse 30, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come to your word, we come asking once more for your presence. We are broken people walking around, and now one of us has walked up to the pulpit. And Lord, we don't need our own words, we don't need our own wisdom. We need uh, your word, we need your wisdom, and we need your grace. So would you come, teach us in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as we look at Absalom, David's son, who tried to overthrow his father, we're going to see that this passage teaches us one one hard truth, a hard truth we might not like to hear, we might not like to think about, certainly not one I like to study this week, but a hard truth that we need 
to hear. We'll, we'll get to that truth, but first, let's look at the story together. Now, it's important for us to understand, if you really to understand Absalom, the thing that you need to know as you arrive on chapter, chapter 15 is that Absalom is really the Bible's ultimate pretty boy right? Absalom is the David Beckham of the Old Testament, right? And we know this from chapter 14. Flick back one chapter and look at verses 25 through 27. Here we get Absalom's press release, his bio, and we're told three things about him. First, we're told that he is devastatingly handsome, verse 25. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now, in ancient Israel, much like today, no men had nice feet. Okay? That's just a, that's been a fact of the world from Adam onwards. Men don't have nice feet, but Absalom, this, dude's, this dude does. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he is a beautiful man. Not only that, but we're told in verse 26 that he has a splendid hairdo. Look at it. When he cut the hair of his head for the the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. Now just, can you imagine like being like, man, I need a haircut. Not because it looks weird, but because it's weighing me down, right? You know, that's, that's what happened to this guy. He weighed the hair of his head, and it was 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, there's a lot of debate as to exactly how much that weighs, but it could be around about six pounds, right? Dude grew six pounds of hair every year. He has, like, the ultimate man bun, right? Then, not only is he handsome, not only does he have great hair, but look at verse 27. He has, of course, uh, a beautiful family. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. Quite the intro, quite the bio, except did you notice that nothing is said of any wisdom? Nothing is said of any holiness? Why? Because there's really not that much to say. Absalom is a man who has style, but he doesn't have substance. He has honed his image, but he hasn't got any integrity. He has great charisma, but he lacks character. Now, we could preach a whole sermon on this theme. Could we not be careful and thoughtful about what you look for in a leader? Be careful and thoughtful about the kind of leader that you are. It's not all about the external appearance to the Lord. The internal is much more important. And chapter 15 is going to show us what happens when we prioritize the wrong thing. Let's look at it verse by verse together. Starting in verse 1, as we arrive in the scene, we see that our, our pretty boy's PR machine is kicking into gear. Look what he does. Verse 1, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. So dude gets an entourage. He's got some groupies. Everywhere he goes, he presents the kind of image and power of someone who has prestige and importance. Verse 2, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to bring before the king, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? So he gets up early in order to go and work the crowd. He flashes that winning smile. He shakes hands. He kisses babies. He is endearing himself to the people. He does some more of this in verse 5. Look at verse, verse 5. He rebuffs the standard deference, the, the homage that would be given to him as the son of the king. And, and instead of receiving that, he, he embraces everybody with a hug and with a kiss. He is acting like he's a man of the people. Like he understands. He's acting like a politician at a state fair. So, verse 3, Absalom would say to those at the gate, see, 
Your claims are good and right. But there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. You see what Absalom's doing here? He's sowing the seeds of rebellion, and he begins by, by undermining the current regime. Absalom has never met a plaintiff that he doesn't agree with. So you come and bring your case, and he agrees with you. This is an outrage. Five minutes later, your opponent comes with the same case, and he agrees with them. This is an, an outrage. He agrees with, with everyone to curry a favor, and then bemoans the lack of justice that they'll receive by blaming it on a kind of governmental red tape, governmental bureaucracy. If only, he says, if only it was my job to judge the land. Wouldn't that be great for you if, if I were in charge? Then everyone would get justice. One commentator notes, Absalom didn't have to make any hard and often unpopular judgments. He only had to claim that he would. It's always easier to talk about being a leader than it is to actually be a leader, and here we see Absalom talking the talk. Well, unfortunately, his tactics work, and so we read, look down at verse 3, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He knocked in enough doors, he built his base, he got his popularity rating to the point that all he now has to do is decide when to stage his coup. And the time comes in verse 7. It begins in an appropriately deceitful way as he uses worship as a cover for his conspiracy. See in the text there, Absalom comes to King David and he says, oh, I would like your permission to go and fulfill a vow of worship to the Lord at Hebron. I promised God that if he brought me back to Jerusalem, then, then I would go to Hebron and I would worship him there. This is a vow I've made to God. I want to fulfill my vow of, of worship. So do I have your permission to go? And King David says, yes, go, go in peace. And then Absalom uses the trip, he uses the journey in order to send messengers and spread his conspiracy throughout the entire nation. He rallies his followers, telling them it's time to crown him as king. We get to verse 13 and we read that David has some underground informants of his own and they let him know what his son is up to. And can you imagine with me just for a moment the heartbreak of that discovery? David has already had one son die in this series. And now he learns that another son, his own flesh and blood, is planning to betray him. And so verse 14, he makes, David makes escape plans. He says, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. See, David knows how things work. He knows that in order for there to be a new king, the old king must die. He knows that Absalom isn't just saying, I want your throne. He's saying, I want you dead. I want you dead. What's going on here? Here's the hard truth that I think we need to hear. Simple point of our text, the clear teaching of this passage is simply that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. 
Absalom is the main character in this passage, but it's actually not primarily about him. This passage isn't included in order to highlight the um, sort of shallow, superficial nature of his character. Instead, it's written to highlight David's lack of substance, integrity, character. How so? Because this passage is included as the fulfillment of something that happened a couple of chapters earlier. Remember with me, or if you're, you're new with us, follow along with me as we remember what David's story has been. God has made David king over Israel and blessed him with grace upon grace. And yet David has turned his back on God. He's despised the Lord's word. He's even despised God himself. Though God loved him faithfully and creatively and and passionately, David chose to go his own way and fell into great sin. And so God, not being prepared to give up on him, sent the prophet Nathan to David in order to call him out. And remember what Nathan says to him, verse 9 of chapter 12. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've murdered your best friend. And you've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, here's the key verse that makes sense of chapter 15. Chapter 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, because of your sin, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. God told David that there would be consequences for his sin. And in our chapter, these consequences come to pass. This chapter isn't so much about Absalom as much as it's including him to highlight how he was the instrument God used to bring David's consequences about. David thought he could do what he wanted. He thought that he was king. He thought he could get away with anything, especially if it was unseen, but God saw it all, and now he's experiencing the consequences of his sin. The point of this passage is that sin has consequences. It makes me think, of Galatians 6, verse 7. Isn't this a a weighty verse? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God speaks to us this morning. He speaks to me this morning. He speaks to you this morning. He says, hey, listen, don't be deceived. Wake up. Don't be fooled. Don't get this wrong. God is not mocked. David thought everything he did went on in secret, but God saw it all. We might think there are things going on in our lives that no one knows about, but the Lord sees it all, and sin has consequences. Whatever you sow, that will you also reap. Now, sometimes, of course, the consequences of sin are, are obvious, okay? Um, kids, you all know this, right? You tell a lie to your parent, you get found out, you get in trouble. Right? Clear connection. Uh, parents, you all know this too, because if you drink too much in the morning, you have a hangover. And you don't wake up in the morning and say, God, why has this happened to me? Right? You know why this has happened to you. You wake up in the morning and you say, never again. Yeah? So I'm told. Right? Um, sometimes the consequences of sin are, sin are obvious in our lives. Sometimes, though, of course, they're subtle. They're subtle. So... 
you look at porn and you don't realize that this isn't just a momentary sin, but it's actually sowing great dysfunction into your present and future sex life. Or you harbor resentment in your heart and you don't realize that while it feels energizing to be angry with them, you're actually becoming a, a bitter, angry person. Or you gossip about someone not realizing that you're becoming an untrustworthy friend. Not only to the person that you're gossiping about, but to the person that you're gossiping to because they now know that you're a gossip. Sin has, has consequences. One way or another, they all come out. Do not be deceived, the Bible says. God is not mocked for whatever one sows. That will he also reap in this life and in the next, here on earth, but also in heaven and in hell. So if that's the case, if that's the point, what do we do about it? Two things. Sin has consequences. Two things we need to do. First of all, Christians, and if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, we want to push back against um, the way our culture thinks about sin and insist, point one, that we take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. See, we live in a culture that, do, that doesn't like this term. It's an unpopular uh, term, but it's really a concept that, that, that isn't all that um, controversial. <laughs> the Bible uses the word sin simply to describe the th- what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? The, 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 the evil and the brokenness and, and, and the pain that we see in, in our world. When we do things we ought not to do, when we leave undone the things we should do, when we look out at the world, we see evidence of such evil everywhere. And the whole world would agree that the horrors of of war and the human trafficking industry and so on and so on and so forth, we see a world that bears the marks of sin. But then we're also honest and recognize, yeah, this problem of sin isn't just out there with the world. The problem of sin is also in here with me. That it's not just that other people do evil things. It's that we ourselves have done evil things. And so we, we don't want to be squeamish about this term. We just want to face up to what the Bible's describing as a reality we all know. And we want to take sin seriously. You understand this morning, sin never takes you where you want to go. Sin never takes you where you want to go. Look at where it took David, verse 30. That's why we read verse 30. David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. One of the horrors of sin is that it lies to you and says that it will make you happy. So David thought, ooh, Bathsheba, she'll make me happy. Oh, this cover-up, this will make me happy. It lies to you and and has you believe that it will make you happy, but in the end, it just leaves you weeping. That's what it did to David. This is part of what what sin does. It casts this spell that causes us to believe that if we do these things, we'll be happy. You you know that's in the moment why we sin? We sin because we want to. (laughs) Because it feels good and we think it will make make us happy. And the Bible says it will not. It says that in the end, it leaves you weeping. That sin will never make you happy. That it over promises and under delivers Every single time. And friends, some, some of us need to hear that word. Because some of us are caught up in sin right now that we're allowing to flourish. Some of us are, are, are allowing that flirtation with the co-worker to sparkle and just to enjoy it. Because nobody really knows and it's not going to cause that much harm. You're wrong. <laughs> Take your sin 
seriously. Some of us need to hear this word because we, we allow ourselves little white lies. We allow ourselves to just bend the truth, shape the truth so that uh, we appear a little better in public. And they're white lies. No one will ever really know. No, you're wrong. These things, they won't make you happy. They compromise your integrity. In the end, they always nearly come out. Is there something in your life that you need to hear this word on? Is there some sin that you're allowing, even that you're cherishing because you believe it will make you happy? Hear the Bible say that we must take it seriously. It never takes you where you want to go. And friend, you and I, we were made for so much more. We were made for so much more than sin. Do you remember David's life when he walked with God? It was wild and adventurous and hilarious. He fought lions, he wrestled bears, he took down giants. It's like the greatest life a small boy could ever have. It was glorious, it was full, and it was free. And compare that to his life of sin, to the secrecy and the darkness and the shame and the guilt and the mess and the wallowing of of it all. We weren't made for that. We indulge in that, but that's not what God created us for. God created us for a fullness of life, an adventureful life, a life that is happy in him. Sin won't take you where you want to go. And and friends, you were made for so much more. So take it seriously. Take it seriously. Men, um, let me ask you, are you currently sowing something that you do not want to reap? There's something in your life that that you're relying on because you think it will make you happy. How are you deceiving yourself? Woman, same question. How how are you deceiving yourself? Is there some sin you think will make you happy? Are are you currently sowing something that you don't ever want to have to reap? Hear the call of the Bible. If you are caught in these kind of circumstances right now, take your sin seriously and turn from it turn from it. Come to the the, the pastors, come to the leadership, come and talk about what's going on in your life because you don't know how to deal with the mess that's unfolding. Come and share it with with friends in your community group. Come and make it known amongst the community. Bring your darkness into the light that you might still turn from your sin before you have to reap the full consequences of all that you have sown. Take sin seriously. Second though, Sin has consequences. Take it seriously. Second, um, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. If you find yourself right now dealing with the messy consequences of sin in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, wherever it may, may be, remember that if you are in Christ, and if you're not in Christ, this morning you can be. If you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, this morning you can become one. If you are in Christ, and this morning you can be, then God no longer uses the consequences of our sin to punish us. If you're a Christian, the consequences of your sin are not punitive. What do I mean by that? I mean that for Christians, the consequences of sin are not some sort of punishment from God. Instead, he uses even these things for our growth and development in him. Hebrews 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. 
The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Sometimes God allows us to experience the consequences of our sin because he loves us. See, we are so quick to minimize our sin. We're so quick to make light of it. We're so quick to forget how dangerous it really is that sometimes God comes and breaks the spell by allowing us to taste some of the consequences. And he doesn't do this because he hates us. He does this because he loves us. The Bible's word for discipline is where we get our word pediatrics. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The doctor who is at work for good. Now, sometimes the doctor has to use the scalpel. Sometimes the doctor has to do things we don't understand. Sometimes we wish the doctor would leave us alone. But in the end, the doctor is at work for for our good. And this is what happens for those who are in Christ, for those who believe in, in Jesus. We say grace changes everything. It even changes consequences. Why? Because it transforms them from punitive consequences into fatherly discipline. How can we be so sure? Look with me at verse 30 again. It's a beautiful verse where we read that David goes up the Mount of Olives weeping as he went. And this verse points us to Luke 19. It reminds us that the gospel is not primarily good advice. Hey, take sin seriously. That's good advice. But that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't primarily good advice for what we should do. It's primarily good news about what has been done. And this verse, that verse 30, points us toward Luke 19, where another king would ascend the Mount of Olives. And he too would be weeping as he went. Do you remember when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem? He's not weeping for his own sin, for he has no sin. He's weeping for the sin of his people and the consequences that will await them. And this son of David, Jesus, is nothing like Absalom, the son of David. Absalom is a pretty boy. Jesus has nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Absalom comes to betray his own flesh and blood. Jesus comes to give his own flesh and blood. Absalom comes and says, I want you dead in order that I might have your throne. Jesus comes and says, I will die in order that you might share my throne. Absalom couldn't be more ugly, while Jesus couldn't be more beautiful. And this grace This grace that we have in him changes everything. First of all, it takes all the condemnation our sin is due. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. There's no punishment left. So how do you know if you're a Christian that God isn't punishing you? Because the punishment's already been done. It's already been taken full and free by Christ. There, there is no punishment left. Kind of double jeopardy idea. There's, 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 there's no more wrath to be poured out on us for our sin because it's all been poured out for, upon Christ on his cross. And then taking our condemnation, he doesn't just take that, but he transforms the consequences into discipline. He's the great physician who's at work for our best. So if you're mired in sin this morning, come to Christ and find forgiveness is yours. And peace is yours. And life is yours. And grace is yours. And the consequences of your sin do not mean that you are disqualified because Christ is yours. If you're experiencing this pain, then humble yourself before him. Enjoy the freedom of humility. Learn what the perfect father has to teach and be blessed as you walk in his ways. Sin has consequences. We take it seriously, but we don't 
lose hope. That takes us to this table, this table where we again see a betrayal, the betrayal of Judas, where we again see body and blood, body and blood of, of Christ shed on our behalf. Do you know, and I'm happy to tell you more of this story later, I just don't have time right now. About 20 years ago, I was a member of the church and I was disciplined and um, part of my discipline was that I wasn't to take the Lord's Supper, that I wasn't to take of communion for, for six months as, as part of my discipline. Now, isn't it amazing that in God's economy, the guy who was barred from the sacrament now administers the sacrament? You're about to receive the Lord's Supper from a broken man. Now, what's my point? My point isn't, hey, be like me, right? My point is, I can tell you from personal experience that God uses discipline for good. And I'm not the man I ought to be, and I'm not the man I want to be, but I'm also not the man I used to be. Because that's what grace does. So wherever you find yourself this morning, even if you don't think there's a way out, let me tell you as someone who's been there, there's always a way out. And it comes through his cross and coming to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that uh, if Absalom were to walk in here right now, we'd probably all love him. Um, dashing dude with great chat. We'd enjoy his company. And yet, Lord, there is no substance to him. But your word speaks of him, not so much to teach us about him, but to teach us about his father, David. A man who also lacked substance, integrity, character. And who faced, Lord, uh, painful consequences for, for his sin. And Lord, as we, we think of David, we're of course quick then, not just to, to condemn him, but to see the reality of ourselves. To see how we have failed, to see how broken we are. And so, ultimately, Lord, to give you thanks that you have come in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, to give us hope that condemnation is no more. It is all received by him. The consequences have now been transformed into discipline where you are at work for, for our good. And so, Lord, we come to this table with glad and grateful hearts to, to take and eat of your goodness toward us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.